Oh, that just jacks me up seeing that once again. That was the church that I pastored before this church. A church that was uh, dead set in its ways, an older congregation, but yet for one day decided we will make a difference in our small town. And that town, let me tell you, they were just hit upside the head. They didn't know what to think that day. It was incredible how many people were affected for Christ that day. As one small church, one small church, one traditional small church can make a difference, I say, why not Wendover Hills? What can Wendover Hills look like, not only just affecting people on one day, but for many days to come, all year long, every year, over the next uh, couple months, I will be sharing with you the new vision of Wendover Hills. And it's going to be exciting because it's going to basically almost look like a new church plant. It's that much different. But it's exciting because we're all a part of it. And as I have been uh, seeking the Lord on this, and I, and I know I've been hearing conversations with, uh, with our people here at Wendover Hills, God has already been preparing your hearts. This is our vision and so we're going to go into um, some things today, not uh, go deep into our vision, but just share a few things. But we're going to go through the book of Nehemiah um, over the, the, the next several weeks, not verse by verse, but we're going to hit um, scripture here and there out of Nehemiah because it's the perfect book for our church. As it talks about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, I talk about rebuilding the walls of Wendover Hills once again. And, you know, there was a time early on in my ministry, ministry as a senior pastor that, um, while I was at that church, that uh, I had got to the point where I was at a crossroads. I, I felt like um, through conversations and things like that, I, I, I finally almost had a breaking point where a gentleman on Sunday morning had, had basically told me that in a roundabout way that, uh, I basically need to save his entire family, you know. And um, I think that was about it for me. And I had to go out the back of the of the church, outside, and I just sat down. And I was just like, what is the point of church? I just came to the crossroads. I'm like, what is the point of church? What is the point of me being a pastor? I didn't sign up for this, God. <laughs> Sorry, but when I was a young boy, I didn't really think about being a pastor growing up. I wanted to be an NBA player. It didn't um, bless me with enough height, so it didn't work, uh, or enough skills. But, uh, <laughs> but I was sitting there, I was just struggling, because I, I was, it was 20 minutes before service, and I sat out there for at least 15 minutes. I was, I was just about to call it quits. Just, I'm, I just I want to go home. I want to leave. I'm through. Because all I saw was church where people just showed up once a Sunday to rate my performance as a pastor and my preaching and to say whether the worship music was good or not and then just hear complaints the whole week. What kind of life is that? <laughs> I was sick of it. I was just truly sick of it. And I'm like, there's got to be something more to church. 
and it just sent me, thankfully, in the right direction and not the opposite direction of just calling it quits because I knew God's calling was too strong upon my life. Rather, it challenged me to say, okay, what is it that how church, what, what is it that church could look like today? And then for the last two, three years, I've been on this journey of searching for what is missing today in the churches that I've been involved in. And then it came to a point in England when I shared a little bit about that when I came back. But it was incredible because I thought, you know what? As a pastor, I don't want to just come here and preach a message on Sunday morning and then go back home and watch football, though I love football, or go back home and take a nap, though I love taking naps. And that be it. I want to be a part of a movement. And I hope that you want to be a part of a movement as well. No longer just coming here just for no reason, but to have a purpose for this church. Over about eight months ago, I shared um, the start of the vision. We had the, the one more. We shared our, vi- our mission statement, which is, Awakening one more soul to experience life in Jesus Christ. It's the one more. But in a long time coming, I didn't know exactly how that was going to come about then. But now, God has brought it to full fruition. We are going to, um, as we continue to talk about this, and, and as I talk to you individually and as families and things like that, we're going to start sharing about what this church can look like what it could be and what it should be once again. And it's going to be awesome. So it's going to look almost like a new church plan. So I just encourage you, just invite everyone. Invite everyone you can. Invite your friends, invite your family, invite strangers, invite Starbucks, invite whoever you want to invite. Just invite them, okay? But part of this, uh, this vision is going to look like this. We are going to be more of a missional church, Okay. We'll be more missional than we are attractional. There's a debate going on today whether a church should be missional, do the missional model or the attractional model. The attractional model is, is basically come, build it, and they will come, okay? Um, have the new, newest technology, have the, um, the, the, the greatest building, build large churches, things like that, build it, and they will come model. Or there's the missional model, which is forget the entire building, Go out and be Jesus in, in, the, in the city, in the streets, and everywhere else. And I think we need a little bit of both. But I think we need to be more missional than attractional. The attractional part, I would say we're going to focus on um, our first-time experience for the first-time guest and things like that. And, um, of course, we'll keep up with a little bit, as much as we can, with the media and technology. But we're going to be mainly a missional church living in communities with one another and, and spreading those communities out into our community, okay? And so that's kind of what it's going to look like there. And also we want us to be more of an organism than an organization. Yes, we are an organization, but we want to be more of an organism because an organism is tightly linked together. These, these parts that come together and are living and, and breathing and going out together, and that's what we want our church to be about, that we are tightly linked. And I'm already sensing it happening here at Wendover Hills. I feel like people are becoming more and more unified here. 
as the days go about. It's awesome to see. And we just want to continue that pattern and to become more of, of, a, of a missional church and, and as an organism, okay? Now, uh, Nehemiah, as we talk about uh, this book, as we kind of go through this book, we're going to focus on the first two chapters today. I'm not going to read the entire first two chapters, but we're going to, we're going to hit on those. And um, I believe that as we go throughout this book, you'll begin to see that direction determines um, destination. Like a map or a GPS, we need, to be, we need to have a clear vision for our lives personally, and we have to, need to have a clear vision for our church as well. And um, because we want to end up on so, somewhere on purpose, don't we? We want to end up somewhere on purpose. I can remember just being in the weight room recently, and um, I, I work out with the older people. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. But I come at a time... I come at a time when I work out with the older people. I love them. They are sweet. I just love them to death. Um, but as I'm working out, a lot of times um, I'll, I'll notice a lot of people do. And remember, I used to train people. <laughs> so I, I see them like almost hurting themselves on machines. You ever been in the weight room and you see, I mean, just banging the machines up and down. And I saw this lady, this older lady doing uh, the, the tricep pull down, all right? And, and she had it like way up here and was swinging it down. And I'm like, oh, she's going to hurt herself. I finally couldn't take it any longer. I'm like, I got to help her out. So I went over there. I'm like, can I show you how to, how to, how to do this for you? <laughs> I didn't say so you wouldn't hurt yourself, but I'm like, just so you know how to properly do it so you can get the most out of your workout. And she's like, yes, of course. And she was so sweet about it. So I'm like, okay, just, you know. Have your feet shoulder width apart, knees slightly bent, and um, have your elbows in. This is working your triceps, so you're going to go all the way down, extend out, slow and in control, come up about 90 degrees, and go back down. You want to have uh, uh, probably 10 to 15 reps if you're working on definition and things like that. So we were showing her, and, and, and all of a sudden it's like it clicked, and she got it. And what's so cool about it is later on as I'm working out in the, in the same weight room there, I see her teaching other people. It was just that exercise, but she's like got a group of people around her. She's like, this is how you do it. And she's do- and I'm like, I just created a disciple. I didn't even know, you know. I mean, that is awesome. I'm like, how easy was that? How easy was that? And we've got to remember what the church is called to do. Jesus said before he left, go and make disciples of all nations. And when we think about discipleship and we get scared of that word and we think, oh, 700-page book of what you've got to do and you know, so many books have been written about and everything else. But really, if you just look at the model of Jesus and if you just go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll discover that Jesus simply took others with him. He lived out his life by example and by teaching them when he, when he had the opportunity to do it. He took them with him. And that's how they learned discipleship at its best. And so I thought about that lady in the weight room. I thought, man, how easy that was and how easy it can be for our church to do the same. We want to continue to, to, um, to multiply ourselves, multiply disciples, create more disciples as we become disciples of Jesus Christ. You know what? I think the Israelites forgot who they were. And before we get into the book of Nehemiah, if you just want to jump back um, two books to Second Chronicles, which I really encourage you to read Ezra, which is between Second Chronicles and Nehemiah. 
because Ezra and, um, and Nehemiah are linked together. And you will do good to read those as well. But in the last chapter of Chronicles, this is what had happened here. You see, the Israelites who were God's chosen people, God's holy people to be set apart, to, to set the example for the rest of the nations, had forgotten who they were. And I think if we're not careful as a church, we'll forget who we were to be as well, what God has called us to be. So in verse 14 of chapter 36, it says, Furthermore, all the leaders, now it's even starting with the leaders, the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of, the, of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again. And if you read throughout the Bible, you'll see that there's this pattern that goes on. Because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the temple of the Lord's temple uh, and the treasures of the uh, king and his officials. And this is what happened here. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Okay? And so that is what is taking place before we jump into Nehemiah. God's people have been unfaithful again and again and again. And finally he just said, you want to walk in your ways, go for it. It's a scary place to be. That's why it's important to be obedient to the Lord. And they decided to go their own way. God let them, allowed them to do that. And because of it, they had everything destroyed. Everything destroyed. And, and they, were, they, were, they were exiled from their own country. And uh, now we see that they are in Persia. And this is where we... we, we uh, um, uh, come about then in Nehemiah chapter 1 where we hear these words the words of Nehemiah son of Hakaliah now this is, this is cool because this is like um, Nehemiah, Nehemiah writing these words down it's almost like he's journaling here and we get to get insight into what is happening it says in the month of Kislev in the 20th year when I was in, while I was in the citadel of Susa and this is Nehemiah talking Hananiah, uh, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, and this is his response, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's response was weeping, mourning, fasting, praying day and night. 
And in this prayer, that this beautiful prayer that he prays to God after all that, he is repenting not only of his sins, but of the sins of his people. Um, he's asking for God's favor. He's waiting, and then he moves along because he's planning as well. But this had moved him so much. This became a burden to him. And God was setting within him a vision for what could be and should be for the people of, of, uh, for the people of Jerusalem. I want to ask you this question. What makes you cry? What makes you cry? You might be thinking of the last Extreme Home Makeover, makeover um, show. All right? Hey, I cry. I cry. I'm not afraid to admit it. The, ne- the, the biggest loser stories, right? On, on, well, uh, maybe it was your ball team. They haven't won. It. Maybe it's uh, the Detroit Lions. Any Detroit Lions? Well, I guess you have. You guys cry a lot, actually. Um, or actually, the Panthers. I should say the Panthers, really. Yeah, but the Colts, they, we don't. We just cry of joy, uh, joys of tears of joy, actually. Um, but, sorry, I got off on a tangent there. But what is it that you cry? I mean, how, when's the last time, though, seriously, when is the last time that you've cried over something of internal, eternal importance? When's the last time you cried over an unsaved um, family member in, in, your, in your family, uh, uh, an unsaved friend, um, your community? When's the last time you cried um, for your church? When, when's, the, when's the last time you wept for, for, for something of eternal importance? When's the last time you had a burden to see something happen that wasn't happening? Maybe it's in your school. Maybe it's that one student that no one can reach. Maybe, it's, maybe God's calling you to reach them. What is it? What, what have you ever... When is the last time you've done that? When you've had your face to the ground calling out to the Father and asking him to help you change that situation. For Nehemiah, he saw that the walls were down. He saw that this was not only um, um, a, a product of, of them not, not um, being able to be protected, but it was much more than the walls just being broken down. He had a heart to see the people once again come to know God from the beginning to become, have that vibrant relationship once again, to come back to obedience to the Father. He had that burden. So we see that um, at the end of chapter 1, it says, I was cupbearer to the king. It's kind of hanging there by itself there, but, but it gives us good info because, uh, because Nehemiah was close to the king. As a cupbearer, uh, he would basically choose the wine, all right, and then taste it, before he would give it to the king um, to make sure that no one had poisoned it. So what a job he had, right? <laughs> Basically putting his life on the line every day just in case somebody wanted to knock off the king. He is the one that had to go through first with drinking of the wine before he would give it to the king. And so, uh, so during this time, uh, we see that he is probably one of the closest to the king because he sees him on a daily basis. And... And God was positioning Nehemiah in this place to be able to see this vision through. 
And so in chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, in the, in the 20th year of King um, Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, um, you've got to understand, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, four months had passed. All right? From Kislev to uh, Nisan. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Nisan. And um, four months had passed according to, their, to the Persian calendar there. So four months, think about it, that Nehemiah has had this burden, this vision, and he didn't just go off and just spout it off right off the bat. He was allowing it to grow. He was allowing it to strengthen. He was praying it through, and he was developing a plan in the midst of this as well. What would happen if he was able to share this with the king, and would the king allow him to go and, and make this happen? Because if you read in the book of Ezra in chapter 4, there was a time where they were, they were trying to rebuild uh, the temple and trying to rebuild the, the walls once again. But during that process, some people had a, had, a, had a fit about it. And they went to the king and wrote him a letter. And the king wrote a letter back and said, all right, let's put all stops to it. And it was the same king here, Artaxerxes. And so Artaxerxes then was, uh, was uh, um, already primed to say no. But we know that only God is the one that can move in any circumstance. And so Nehemiah has been praying about this, fasting, doing all the weeping. More. For four months he's been, he's been going through this, preparing for this moment. And so we see then it says in verse 2, So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So evidently he is very cheerful quite a bit around the king. But the thing is that, that he was able to hide it for four months. Can you imagine that? Being so burdened about something, but hiding it for four months because maybe he, didn't, maybe he knew that it wasn't the right moment to allow his, his guard down to show the king and then to get into that conversation because he knew the king would know what was up. So finally, he lets his guard down in, in, at, around this time now, the four-month four, uh, mark. And the king says, hey, look like you're sad. What's going on? And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Here's the pivotal moment. What is it that you want? Needing all the courage that he could, he could drum up because he could put his life at stake here by saying something wrong. And Artaxerxes could be the one that can be like, off with your head kind of deal, right? I mean, he could do anything. He had the power to do that. It says then, I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. It's probably one of those short prayers in your head. Help me, God. Help me. Help me. Have you ever had that prayer? That's good, too. You know, you can pray those prayers. It's all good. God still hears you. Help me. And so it says this. Um, it says, if it pleases the king, he, t- he says this to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And there's this long pause, right? What's he going to say? We don't know how long he, he was taken to, to answer that. It doesn't really tell us. He says, okay. Go, what do you need? What do you need? 
I'll provide it for you. What do you need to do? And he has this plan because he's been praying. He's been preparing during this time of waiting. And, and Nehemiah lays out the plan. Hey, by the way, he knows the political schemes of the, of the provinces out in the area. So he's like, I need help. Um, I need other letters written to these guys so that they will be able to allow me to, to get the supplies I need or to allow me to go through the province, allow me to, to be able to prepare to rebuild these walls once again. And the king was able to grant that request. But isn't it funny that when you have a vision, and maybe you've been here before, when you stick your neck out there, when you know what could be and should be and you're moving in that direction in your profession and your family and your whatever it may be, that there's always someone or a couple of people who just want to drag you down. The ones that just get inside your head. That would have been Symbolit and Tobiah. And it says here in verse 10 that they are very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And so we see the next scene, Nehemiah goes and he inspects the walls at Jerusalem and he checks it out and he's, and he's, he's allowing this vision to, to continue to manifest within him and he's excited about it and he hasn't shared it yet with his people because he wanted to be thorough about it. And then once he starts to share it, this is what happens. He says in verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. They knew that already. And its gates have been burned with fire. He says, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, and I love this. Why don't you just repeat this with me? Let us start rebuilding. Let's try it one more time. Let us start rebuilding. They're like, I'm on board, baby. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's get back our spiritual heritage. Let's get back um, our relationship with God. Let's rebuild these walls. Let's settle back into them. Let's stop being slaves to these people. Let's step out of our comfort zone and do this. And we know that the enemy is going to attack because in verse 19, says, but when Symbolic the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite the official and, and they even got Gisham into the mix here who was the king of Kedar um, the Arab uh, heard about it they mocked and ridiculed us says what is this that you're doing they asked are you rebelling against the king almost as a reminder going back to Ezra chapter 4 that remember what happened the last time people tried to rebuild the walls you remember what happened. They shut them down. They shut them down. Don't you even think that you can do it? There's no way. But here's what's awesome about Nehemiah, of how he responds. Instead of sinking down to their level, Nehemiah responds in the most incredible way. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his, we are his servants. We'll start, we, his servants, will start rebuilding but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historical right to it. When you start to pursue a vision and people are on board with that vision because it's a God vision and not just a good vision, it's a God vision. And there will be others that try to trip you up along the way, whether this is in your personal vision or if this is in 
the, the vision of the church. There's going to be times of resistance. But remember, if it is a God vision, it will be successful. And God will see it through. You don't have to worry about it. God will see the vision through. So Nehemiah took the initiative to move from what could be done to what should be done. So what should we do as a church body then? You guys know the Home Depot model, which they went away with just this year actually, but the Home Depot model is you can do it, we can help. You've ever heard of that? Everybody knows that? And what if our motto, like during this next so many weeks in Nehemiah, that we could say God can do it, we can help. God can do it. This is a God vision. We can help. Here's the thing why I want to see happen in this church is that we would own Wendover Hills once again, that we would truly be Wendover Hills, God's people doing the vision that he has called us to do and to be. Um, What I want you to understand is this, is that what I've learned in my short time in ministry, (laughs) very short, um, but I know that what you do put into a church is what you will get out of a church. And so if you're willing to join the rest of of, of Wendover Hills in this vision, as we start talking more about it in the coming months, and we put all we have into it, I'm telling you what, God is going to do some incredible things through this church and in this church body. If you're willing, God can do it. We can help. That is including a personal thing. Can we do it? Yes. So my challenge is this. I'm going to, um, every week for the, for the next um, several weeks in this series, I'm going to give you guys an assignment. Okay, and this is just to help us come together in a unifying effect leading up to the relaunch series, which will describe everything about the vision. But I'm going to give you an assignment every week, okay? And um, I will also email on, I'll try to email out on, on Mondays the assignment as a reminder and tell you what I'm doing in that assignment as well. And um, if I don't have your email address, by the way, um, uh, you can see Suzanne, our, our, our wonderful secretary over here, Suzanne, that's her. Um, you could get it to her or you could, you could get to me. You could just email me on the back of your bulletin. It's my email address. But I want your email addresses, all right? Because I want to stay in great communication with you. And so here's the thing. Here is the assignment for week number one. You ready for this? To start anything with all this, we, as we just ended the prayer series, I want to continue in that, but I want us to also fast. Okay? If you've never fasted before, it can be an awesome thing. Now, the fast can look different for everyone, and, and that is because there's many different fasts throughout the Bible. I am more likely, and I've decided completely yet, because I'm still going to seek God on this, but um, I'm more likely going to do um, um, a fast of three days without food and strictly water, um, so that I can pray for the, the vision of the church and for the, the, the roles of each of you in this vision. Um, um, you could also, if, if, if you're not able to because of uh, physical health or whatever it may be, think of something that you can give up uh, during a time period 
and then devote yourself to praying during that time when you have that urge to go and get that thing, whatever it may be. And maybe it's coffee. Maybe you just want to give up coffee um, um, for a week or whatever it may be. But, but to be able to give up something so that you can pray, think about those urges that you have, and maybe it is that you're not eating uh, for a couple days or a day or maybe a, a lunch or whatever it may be. But I'm going to be uh, fasting during this time, and I'm just going to ask that you guys would fast along with me. Maybe it's even media. You know, we've done uh, media fast before in this church, too, where you just want to shut off all TVs, all radios, everything for a week. That's also a good exercise as well. But something to where you could focus your attention on God and praying, what is my role, Father? What's, prepare me for my role in this vision as we continue to share it throughout the coming weeks. Okay, so that will be your assignment this week. I will email, I'll email some ideas for you as well. Would you like some ideas? I'll send out plenty of ideas um, tomorrow, and then you can decide for yourself. So that we would all, as a church, would be a church-wide fast together so that we can get off to the right start for this vision. And, um, and when I was, uh, just to close this morning, when I was thinking about what Wendover Hills could be and should be, which is so exciting because there's just, there's been many nights where I've not slept <laughs> because I've been so pumped up about what God is going to do in this church. I could just see it. It's beautiful. All right. But um, as I was thinking about Wendover Hills and what it could be and should be, I, I thought of good old Orville and Wilbur Wright. And I know all y'all know because it's on the back of your license plates, right? <laughs> it came, comes to mind because on December 17th, 1903, at 10.35 a.m., they secured a place in history by executing the first powered and sustained flight from level ground. For 12 seconds, Orville flew 120 feet along the dunes of the Outer Banks of North Carolina for 12 seconds. It was an amazing thing that happened in history. And Wilbur described the birth of their, of their vision in this way. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but listen to this. Wilbur says, our personal interest in it, meaning aviation, dates from our early childhood days. Late in the autumn of 1878, our father came into the house one evening with some object partly concealed in his hands. And before we could see what it was, he tossed it into the air. Instead of falling to the floor as we expected it would, it flew across the room till it struck the ceiling, where it fluttered a while and finally sank to the floor. It was a little toy known to scientists as a helicopter, but which we, with sublime disregard for science, at once dubbed a bat. <laughs> it was a light frame of cork and bamboo covered with paper, which formed two screws uh, driven in opposite directions by rubber bands under torsion. A toy so delicate lasted only a short time in the hands of small boys, but its memory was abiding. You see, that childhood experience sparked in those boys a deep-rooted desire to fly one day. And the difference was that they made that desire a reality. With God, we can become the church that he has called us to be. And we can also set about this vision and doing what this church has never done before and to be used in ways that we have never been used before. I hope you're excited about what's going to happen in the days to come. Be in prayer, be in fasting. Know that God can do it and we can help. You would bow your heads with me.
Father, we love you so, so much. And we know, Father, that you have not called Windover Hills to be just another church on the sidelines of Christianity. But you have called us to be an active participant in your moving, in your plan, in the center of your will. You've called us to start a movement here to show the community how to do relationships in the most purest form in the most exciting form. Lead our church to be the example, to be set apart, to be a light in this community that draws others to this light, that we may point more people to you, Jesus. That we would develop a healthy relationship with you, Father, first of all, and then with one another and with our community as well. And that we keep these balance of relationships in check at all times. That there would be accountability there. That there would be excitement there. That there would be challenging and stretching times in in our faith. That we may say, I want to become more like Christ today. I don't ever want to stop growing. I want to be more like you, Jesus. Father, help us as a church to be your church once again. Show us, Father. Equip us. And if this vision is truly from you, Father, which I believe it is, may we see it through. We love you today and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.